0: Unknown mystery space, science has fun, adventure, suspense, fantasy, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror.
1: Welcome to journey number 191 of the Journey Into podcast, featuring With a Banjo on My Knee, by Rish Outfield. I am your guide on this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from base camp in the Treasure Valley. Hey there, everybody. Uh, We are back for another full cast audio story today. It's been a while since I've done one of these. I uh, typically come to you with an old-time radio show, which I definitely enjoy presenting to you, Um, but I also enjoy presenting these full-cast productions to you as well. Uh, After they're done, they're great. (laughs) Uh, I kind of drug my feet. You know, this is the third-place winner in the Quartal Quell writing contest that I did at the beginning of the year, and... One of the things that I said I would do was to produce all three stories by the end of this year, which I kept dragging my feet and I kept realizing that's not going to happen. But I should should at least get things rolling, at least get things started, right? And so that's what I'm doing here today is presenting you with the first story from that contest, the third place winner, uh, written by Rish Outfield. And I am not going to put the needle drop for his name because I'm going to be Referring to Richelot because he's the author of this story. Now, just a reminder, the premise of this contest was that I assigned four words to everybody that wanted to participate in the contest. And the assignment was to use these words in your story in a significant way as much as possible. You know, some were going to be more important than others, of course. Uh, but they should each play a, a significant part in the story at least that was that was the directions and so rish's assigned words were draft drain banjo and guest that was his prompt to write his story those words how would you use those words in a significant way, in a story, and that, you know, that that should really help you shape the story. And so uh, we can talk more about that after we listen to Rich's story here. But I wanted to give you those words up front. So as you're listening to the story, maybe you will pick up on when those words are used. Uh, again, draft, drain, banjo, and guest. Now, you can already tell, that the word banjo was used in the title of the story. And so with that, come with me and let's journey into an obscure alleyway in L.A. With a Banjo on My Knee by Rish Outfield. Garrett McLaren was jogging slower now, the music of his headphones still pounding excitedly, even if he was not. When he heard the shouting, he stopped running and took out an earbud. Went down there, a male voice shouted. Well, he's not there now, another man's voice replied, just loudly enough to be heard. He was standing on the sidewalk in the middle of the block, and the noise came from just up the way. Something in those voices announced danger. Right behind him was an alleyway, and he ducked into it just to be safe. The alley was mostly lit by yellowish bulbs at the back doors of the restaurants on this block. There was a man with dark hair and a light-colored sweater either picking up something or putting something down behind a bunch of crates. Garrett took another step and felt a splash. He had stepped into a puddle of something unpleasant, made by the drain from the roof beside him. He pulled his foot out, hoping he was quick enough to save his sock. The stranger froze at the sound, spinning around and raising his empty hands in the air. Garrett could see Asian features on the man's face, but he spoke with an American accent. Are you one of them? He asked. One of... The stranger nodded and took a few steps towards Garrett. Normally, this would be a frightening situation, but this guy looked scared, and Garrett felt for him. Are you all right? Don't say anything, okay? whispered the man, and then turned and went running down the alley, right past and away from Garrett. He glanced at the crates, then down the alley again, and saw something that would stay with him for the rest of his life. As soon as the running stranger reached the street, a car slammed into him. The sound of the impact echoed off the alley walls. Garrett was horrified. He couldn't see what had happened to the stranger, but moved quickly in that direction, his sodden foot immediately forgotten. He was still twenty feet from the sidewalk when he saw two men get out of the car and go around to help the injured man. But they didn't help him. Together, they picked up the stranger and tossed him carelessly back into the middle of the street. Heard one of them say, Come on! And the two of them hopped back into the car. The vehicle started forward running right over the injured man. Garrett gasped, his legs moving of their own volition. The car raced away, turning down the block and disappearing. Before it was gone, he observed that it had no rear license plate. The whole assault had taken only 40 seconds. Next to him, an older woman came out of the FedEx, half shouting into her phone, Driving off now! It was a green car, ugly one from a long time ago. Maybe a LeSabre? Is that a thing? Garrett moved to the street, where a dark, glistening heap was not moving. A taxicab had stopped in the other lane, and its driver also got out to investigate. A Tesla behind the taxi laid on its horn. No, I'm not sure if he's alive, said the woman on her phone. She moved to the body, hesitating before she touched it. Yes, I can stay on the line. Garrett didn't approach the heap in the street. Living people looked a certain way, and this was not it. Two other pedestrians were now crossing the street to investigate, and the Tesla honked at them, too. There wasn't much Garrett could do. He exhaled through his nose and turned around, going back the way he came through the alley. He walked down to the stack of crates, pausing to make sure he was alone. Behind the stack was a small suitcase. It had a handle, and Garrett lifted it toward the light. It wasn't heavy, but it didn't feel empty either. It looked like a guitar case, just way too small. He could hear a siren in the distance, but not far in the distance. He took a couple steps back, in case he was being watched. It wasn't logical, but it's how he felt, and stepped into the dark liquid pooling in the drain just as he had earlier. He couldn't help but groan. He glanced back up the alley, where there were lots of shadows now, lots of movement. No one was watching him. He turned the case around, trying the latch. It was locked. Garrett took the case to the other end of the alley, away from the noise and crowd. He was less than a mile from home, and realized he had energy to spare. In fact, he probably could have run full bore all the way without getting winded. Adrenaline, he supposed. He went upstairs to his apartment, shifted the case to unlock the door, and went inside. He closed the door, locking it with a chain, which he only did during Lakers championship games, and hustled into the bedroom to throw up in the sink. Maybe it was from all the running. Maybe it was from witnessing a murder. Both were equally likely. Feeling better, he went out to the kitchen and examined the case. He shook it and heard an almost musical twang, like the sound of a rubber band being strummed. He fished a screwdriver out of the drawer and stuck it into the case's lock. Before he jimmied it, he wondered if he was committing a crime here. If so, hadn't he already committed it by simply bringing the case home? He wiggled the tip of the screwdriver, hoping to pop the lock, but ultimately had to simply break it. He unlatched the case, took a deep breath, and opened it. There, lying inside the case, was a banjo. Son of a... Garrett muttered. He had expected treasures, from stacks of cash to Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams baseball cards. He even considered the possibility that it would be full of baggies of white powder. But a banjo? There wasn't a stupider musical instrument than a banjo. Only hayseeds next and inbred gas station attendants played them. The only instrument that bagpipers were legally allowed to make fun of. And it was old and pretty beat up. Scratched, faded, one of the strings missing. Garrett felt like disgorging for a second time. But the guy had hidden it, and one minute later, he'd died. Maybe there was something under the banjo, like diamonds or unopened Star Wars figures from the 70s. There wasn't. Holding the detestable banjo in his hand, Garrett felt something small shift inside. He turned it upside down and shook it. What fell out was not a Ty Cobb baseball card, but a three-by-five card with print on one side. The card was creased and had a dark stain in one corner, a stain that could have been blood, but also could have been barbecue sauce or ketchup. He read it. May eighth, 1986. This banjo's special if you can play her. Treat her right and she'll get you whatever you want. Sonny Osborne Garrett couldn't help but laugh. He considered tearing up the card and tossing it in the half full garbage can beside the stove, followed by the banjo. But he didn't. Instead, he picked up the instrument in two hands and gave it a strum. It sounded just like a regular banjo only worse because he didn't know how to play it. Again, he glanced toward the garbage can. But that stranger had taken the time to hide it. That dead stranger. He took the instrument into his room and removed his laptop from the drawer he kept it in. He searched YouTube for banjo instructions. There were many videos showing how to play, and he clicked on the first one, a 20-minute course for absolute beginners. A bearded hipster in a jean jacket, showed him how to hold the instrument, how to tune it, how to strum, and how to pick. Garrett spent the first five minutes just watching, then eventually followed the instructions, trying to play along. At the end of the video was an ad for a series of training courses you could pay for, and then the weirdest thing, a warning that the banjo was the devil's instrument, and many a man had lost his soul to the siren song of that bluegrass Bathsheba. Garrett couldn't help but laugh, then clicked on the four-minute clip on fingering. It wasn't impossible, and after watching it through a second time, he was able to get his fingers to strum each string individually, in a motion that sounded a little bit like music. Before he knew it, he was doing a passable Mary Had a Little Lamb, and an almost competent Three Blind Mice. He was halfway to Mastering Low by Flo Rita when he glanced at his phone and realized that it was 3.22 a.m. He put down the instrument and got ready for bed. But he did, for a moment, consider calling in sick tomorrow so he could play through the night. Bathsheba, indeed. Garrett pulled into his parking spot already three minutes late for work. Before he'd left, he tossed the banjo and case on his cluttered back seat so he could continue with it. He didn't quite dare take it into the building, but he put it in the trunk and hurried in, managing to clock in at 9.10. Garrett's job was not an exciting one. He was part of a team of seven. They had been eight, but Cleo had won the lottery. Only $11,000, but enough to make her quit the next day, proclaiming everyone in the company... Well, a word you can't say in mixed company anymore. He processed sales forms and sent packing slips to a warehouse across town for high-end prescription eyewear, sunglasses, and goggles. With a price tag so high, you'd have to win the lottery to afford them. His supervisor was a squat, doughy man named Kevin. That's K-Y-V-I-N. Who clearly hated his job and seemed bent on making sure his team did, too.
0: Made it in late, McLaren,
1: Kevin commented as the group gathered for their weekly team meeting at 11. Belva Stone winced in
2: solidarity. Traffic, Garrett lied. Ice cream truck broke down right on the freeway entrance. Gay,
1: Kevin replied, which was a bit puzzling. Was ice cream gay or only their trucks? Or was he suggesting that Garrett's excuse was somehow gay? Garrett somehow got his work done without incident and managed to stay awake for the entire meeting. When lunchtime came, however, he grabbed a Philly sub from the vending machine and hurried out to his car, where he spent the whole hour strumming Home on the Range, having gotten a pretty good feel for the fingering. He switched to Led Zeppelin's most famous song, just trying to figure it out without instruction. It was coming along. He sensed more than saw someone approaching him, and saw Kevin's puffy face morph into a sour expression, muttering something, marching more than walking his way. Garrett had had the car windows down, and instantly regretted it. Nobody liked the banjo, and Kevin Grandine didn't much care for him. When his boss reached the side of the car, the expression on his face had changed. McLaren, I swear, I was about to tell you off, again. Kevin said, seemingly amused, maybe even
0: happy. But every once in a while, I'm wrong about a person. And, well, I think you may be one of them. Garrett was confused. Uh, Meaning? Meaning there's a promotion available that I was going to give Brad Kramer. But it's yours if you want it. A promotion? Here? Garrett asked, still slow on the uptake. What do I have to do? Kevin shook his head. That's the thing. It's exactly what you're already doing. It's just a pay raise, and you see everybody's numbers at the end of each week. He shrugged,
2: and darned if it wasn't a nearly friendly gesture. I mean, what do I have to do to get the promotion? Well... Play that song again. Was it Stairway? Garrett
1: was a bit embarrassed.
2: It was trying to be.
1: He reached over, lifted the banjo, and got his hands in position. And Kevin's face went sour again, reverting to its natural state.
0: A banjo? Jeez. Maybe I should see if I can't get you moved down to the mail room. Garrett didn't dare play a note. I
2: started in the mailroom. It's an awful place.
0: Kevin was not pleased. Okay, smart guy. Maybe I'll recommend Hilson fire you.
1: Garrett's eyes couldn't stop blinking, no matter how much he tried to control them. That had taken a sudden turn. Almost without choosing to, he strummed the banjo and played the If There's a Bustle in Your Hedgerow part, as best he could. Even if it hadn't been very
0: good, the supervisor's face softened again. Well, Cletus, I can see why they moved you out of the mailroom. And why we're going to promote you. He patted the roof of the car and turned to go to his own car.
1: Garrett was surprised at this change in his boss. What they called a heel turn in wrestling.
2: Did it really sound
1: that good? He called. His boss turned slowly, and there were tears running down his cheeks. He gave a solemn nod.
2: But I made a ton of mistakes.
1: Kevin wiped his
0: cheek with one sleeve. Maybe. And the banjo is the most god-awful of all instruments. But still.
1: A couple of minutes later, Garrett put the banjo back in the case. The case back in the trunk and got back to work. Right after four, he got an email from corporate congratulating him on his promotion. Before the end of his shift, he saw Kevin again, who was back to his old self. He didn't threaten to fire him again, at least. Just make sure you're on time tomorrow, banjo boy. Even though the words were harsh, there seemed to be some residual affection in his voice. Garrett did it again the next day, spending his lunch break trying to get better on the banjo. This time, nobody heard him doing it. He stopped at Ralph's grocery store after his shift and got some frozen dinner and Pop-Tarts. The music playing in the speakers overhead was The Eagles' Take It Easy, which turned out to have a banjo in it. When he got back to the parking lot, he took out the instrument and tried his hand at that classic rock standard. It did not go well, but as he put the banjo back in the trunk, he discovered three homeless people, two men and a woman, standing a few feet off, watching him. To his surprise, they didn't ask for a handout. One of the men, a white guy, gave him a thumbs up and walked away. The other two, both black, stood a moment longer, smiling at him. They should be asking for money, or if they could clean his windshield for him or take any recyclables off his hands. But they just beamed. The woman rasped, God bless you, sir, before they, too, walked off in the direction they had come. It wasn't his playing. It was the banjo. It made zero sense. He couldn't play well, but it seemed that people felt good, admired him, maybe even liked him, when they heard him play the banjo. Back home, Garrett got his phone out. And made a recording of him playing Stairway to Heaven on the banjo. He went slow, trying three times before making it to the end of the song, and was not impressed with himself. He figured out how to upload it to YouTube, then went to sleep, excited about what tomorrow might bring. When he woke, he saw that his YouTube video had a total of three views, and one of those might have been him making sure that it worked the night before. He tossed a Pop-Tart in the toaster and headed off to work, managing to clock in only two minutes after nine. Kevin didn't say anything about that, but he did arrange a sit-down meeting to go over the new job description. They both paused as Alexandria Alcazar slinked by, waiting until she was down the hall before returning their attention to each other.
2: Hey, before you go, Garrett said, Can I show you something? Kevin nodded and stood
1: there while Garrett played the YouTube video, now with five views. The supervisor's face never warmed, and there were certainly no tears today. He cleared his throat.
0: Well, you were pretty terrible back then, McLaren. You've made strides since those days. That was yesterday. Just last night. The boss narrowed his eyes. Uh, Don't mess with me, okay? I just submitted your paperwork, and it would be embarrassing if I had to say the promotion's a mistake. I'm not messing with— You played beautifully on Tuesday. If you played that last night, then you should stop smoking meth. He marched off,
1: clearly displeased with the whole exchange. Garrett looked at his video. Someone had written a comment below it. Clicked by mistake. Unless you're a five-year-old, you suck at guitar. He closed YouTube. Apparently, the magic of the banjo only worked live. The next day, Garrett was surprised. More like startled, actually. When Brad Kramer came up and asked,
2: You going to wish LaTanya a happy birthday?
1: Garrett jumped. He'd been thinking about things other than designer glassware orders, co-workers' birthdays, even things other than the lovely Alexandra Alcazar and her brightly colored, ever-tight sweaters. Sorry? Brad Kramer stood there, waiting for an answer. That was a surprise. Brad had always been a bit of a ponce, as the English say.
2: Four o'clock? Break room? Is that now?
1: He asked glancing at the lower right corner of his monitor, which said it was 258. I wouldn't, Brad said. He was a handsome, fit guy with hair that always looked wet, no matter the weather outside. He was so good-looking that he could get away with having a repugnant mustache that maybe an Englishman would refer to as a lip caterpillar if he was particularly clever. People put up with the facial hair in the same way a football coach would put up with a star running back that kept getting caught with teen prostitutes.
0: Don't bother,
1: Brad added, leaning in closer, lowering his voice.
2: She told me she doesn't like you. Nobody likes you.
1: That seemed particularly harsh for a guy who was normally only mildly douchey rather than full-on D-bag. Garrett did his best to ignore the comment, but it's a hard one to ignore especially when he had such a zinger come to him. Brad flopped on Garrett's cubicle wall with his palm, causing another jump, then snorted, and started to walk away.
2: Well, Kevin sure likes me,
1: Garrett couldn't help but say. He should have left it well enough alone. But that last gesture belonged in a middle school locker room, not an office where grown-ups worked. Brad stopped in his tracks and spun around, moving gracefully
2: while he did it. Are you referring to the promotion? Don't know how you got it. I was entitled to that promotion. Garrett put his monitor to sleep. Entitled? You were in the mailroom when I started. But I deserve it.
1: Brad Kramer sneered at him.
2: You're just a slouch.
1: Garrett shifted in his admittedly comfortable
2: chair. What does that mean? That I have bad posture?
1: That lip caterpillar raised itself.
2: Among other things, you don't even care about this company. To you, it's just a paycheck. Well, I'm not going to deny that,
1: Garrett said. He stood up but lowered his voice.
2: Bradley, I saw a man get killed the other day, right in front of me.
1: He snapped his fingers to indicate how fast it was, but his traitor
2: fingers didn't make a noise. That kind of thing puts stuff into perspective.
1: Brad's eyes narrowed. Did you just threaten me? What? Said Garrett, immediately taking on as unhostile a position as he could.
2: No, a guy got hit by a car. He He got back into his cubicle,
1: sitting on that chair again.
2: You know, I've got to tally up these reports. My paycheck depends on it.
1: Brad glowered. And Garrett woke up his monitor again, trying to put 100% of his focus on work. Brad went away, but Garrett was distracted now. His cousin Hayden once got fired for quoting the wrong movie in front of the wrong person. It had been a Quentin Tarantino movie, but that wasn't the point. And hearing about that had chilled 13-year-old Garrett to the bone. Forty-five minutes passed, and a message went out for everyone to join LaTanya E. in the break room for cake and ice cream. For a moment, Garrett considered not going. Brad would be there, and he seemed the type to cause a scene, or at least to say something derogatory to establish dominance among the group. He got a better idea. He got up and headed over to the car, popped his trunk, and brought out his banjo. He took a minute to go through the notes to Happy Birthday, twice before coming back into the building. He went into the break room, where the festivities were already underway for Latanya, Belva and Nunean were handing out cake, and the pretty Alexandria was wearing a sky-blue sweater today, one so small it must have come from Baby Gap. Oh, Kevin exclaimed when he saw Garrett with the banjo. All eyes turned his way. Kevin Grandine seemed thrilled to see what he'd brought, but everyone else recoiled, as if he'd dragged in a mattress from the basement of a condemned building. Is that a banjo? Belvestone asked, clearly horrified. LaTanya, the birthday girl, glared at him over her thick glasses, made by another cheaper company than they worked for. She had never expressed antipathy for him before. Guess it was the banjo. Garrett put on a broad smile.
2: I just wanted to play a bit for you.
1: He strummed out Happy Birthday on the G-string, and suddenly all eyes were on him, and all eyes were liking what they saw. Even Brad paid attention. Garrett met his gaze and got a sneer in return, but then Brad lowered his head as if in shame. Alexandria gave him a wink, causing him to miss a note and everyone applauded when he reached the end.
0: My, oh my, thanks for that,
1: Latanya said, and darned if there weren't tears in her eyes.
2: Hope this is the best year yet, Garrett said,
1: and despite never being particularly close to Latanya Aronson, he meant it. Back at his cubicle, he processed two orders and was in the middle of his third when there was a knock at his cubicle. Even as he turned, he could smell light shampoo, and expected the sextastic Alexandria, there to ask him for a private performance. But it was Belva Stone, another member of his team. Belva was soft-spoken, came from Wisconsin, and always wore something green. She said it was a superstition of hers, and joked that the only day she didn't wear it was on St. Patrick's Day. Today, She had two leaf-shaped earrings in her ears.
3: Am I bothering you?
1: She asked. No. Belva was no beauty like Alexandria, but he'd always liked her. What can I help you with? She pointed to the case beside his feet.
3: That banjo. I loved the way it sounded. It...
1: She closed her mouth, embarrassed. I get it.
3: Anyway, I played the guitar all through school. Then I
1: messed up my fingers on the ski trip. She flexed them for him. Do you think I could... Garrett was a bit hesitant to let Belva touch his instrument, but this was the most extroverted he'd ever seen her.
2: Sure, he said, handing it over. Just be careful.
1: She opened the case, picked it up, and held it in the way the guys on the instructional videos did. Belva played a few notes. They sounded... splendid. It was like tasting the finest Italian gelato. She sang softly as she went. You can
3: change your life if you wanna. You can change your clothes if you wanna.
1: It was not a song Garrett was familiar with, but it was lovely.
3: If you change your mind, well, that's the way it goes,
1: she played, then stopped to adjust one of the strings. He was enthralled. She was completely captivating, and he wondered why he'd ever looked at Alexandria Alcazar with a babe like Belvis Stone nearby. And she was so near, half in and half out of his cubicle like that. He could feel his ears burning and not just his ears. Wow. She stopped playing, suddenly self-conscious. It's been so long, she said, frowning exquisitely.
3: They said I'd have
1: full use of my fingers, but... All at once, she handed back the banjo. He cradled it in his hands, moved that the hottest girl he knew had handled it.
2: That was beautiful. Was that the Beatles?
1: He asked, not sure what else to say. No. She took a step back, getting bashful again. It was Hilary Duff, Garrett. (laughs) Was it really? Belva didn't run off. You really liked my playing? He nodded, and Belva took another step closer, back into the cubicle.
3: It's possible that the banjo's easier than acoustic guitar, then.
1: She held up her right hand, and there was a couple of fingers that weren't quite straight. Garrett longed to touch those fingers, to kiss them.
2: The guy on YouTube said so.
1: Well, if
3: the guy on YouTube said it...
2: She smiled beguilingly.
1: Garrett realized, somehow, that as attracted as he was to her, she was feeling something too. It was like that moment in every romantic comedy, the...
2: Electricity in the air. If you'd like to play it again sometime,
1: he said, hoping she wouldn't reject him.
2: I think that would be great.
1: I would. She took another step closer. Her knees touched his.
3: It's missing a string. I could show you how to replace it,
1: if you want. At that moment, Brad Kramer walked by with Cal Hickson, the vice president of the company and the only dude in the building with better luck than women than him. Cal looked at the banjo in Garrett's hands. You weren't kidding, Brad, he said to everyone who could hear. That's the sweetest-sounding banjo on God's green earth. Garrett started to answer, but Belva spoke over him. The man's got a gift. She extricated herself from between the three men and headed back to her own workspace. That the lady you were telling me about, Brad? Brad? Cal Hickson asked, appraising Belva's backside and finding it wanting. Thought you said she always wore yellow. Well, you can never predict crazy, Brad said, then gave Garrett a thumbs up. Never stop playing that guitar, my man. With that, they walked down the hall together, doing whatever popular, confident people did. Though Garrett did hear Cal Hickson say, Not a guitar, a banjo, you dingbat. Before they were out of earshot. Garrett wouldn't have guessed that Stone knew his car or his parking spot. But as he made his way at the end of the workday, he found her waiting for him. His stepfather's beat-up briefcase was in one hand, and his banjo case was in the other. Putting in a little overtime? Belva asked as he unlocked his car.
2: No, just had a little extra work left over after the meetings and cake and all.
3: Pretty sure that's what overtime
1: is, she said, uncharacteristically sultry. But she wasn't eyeing him. It was the case in his hand. Of course it was. Got anything fun going on this weekend? It was a question he heard pretty much every week and nearly always came up short in answering,
2: I've got to start running again. I stopped, and now I'm afraid I'll never start again.
1: But he got the impression she wasn't particularly interested in his response. She just wanted her hands on that banjo, and he was eager to hear her play it again. You want to try another song? Yeah, sure. Her smile was pretty delightful.
3: Or you could play something and I'd just listen.
2: That was a nice thing to say. I'm kind of terrible, actually. He opened the case.
1: Terrible is as terrible does, she said, which sounded like nonsense. What does that mean? I have no idea.
2: She held out her hands.
1: You have a request?
2: You can really play any song from memory?
1: He asked, though hearing her earlier, he wouldn't put it past her.
3: I can. But the jury's out as to whether you'll tell what it's supposed to be.
1: He handed it over, and she adjusted it. In that way, he hadn't quite gotten the hang of yet. She strummed it, and it sounded like a harp. Not a
2: banjo. A harp in a fairy tale. What kind of songs do you know?
3: I'm kind of a music nerd. Go ahead, test me.
2: Alright, play ABBA. She made a face
1: which was cute, and then started playing Take a Chance on Me, which was very cute. She played it through all the way, and Garrett wished he knew the words to sing along. He'd never been a fan of that song, but he was now. They weren't alone. Cal Hickson was standing beside his BMW and applauded when she was done. Whoa, Melva, that was pretty sick, Cal said crossing the lot.
3: Are you talking to me? She asked.
1: Cal walked past Garrett, unaware he even existed. You got a gift? What do you say I buy you a cup of coffee tonight? He smiled with
0: all his teeth. Or, if you'd rather, a couple of drinks.
1: Suddenly, Garrett felt insanely jealous. He barely knew Stone. But his heart was aching at what he was witnessing right now, in the back of his mind, he was vaguely aware that it was the banjo's influence on him, but hey, he felt what he felt. Bevel looked from Cal to Garrett and did something with her eyes, sending some kind of signal that he couldn't interpret. What was he supposed to say? Who could compete with Cal Hickson? But he held out his hand, and she passed him the banjo as he took it. Belva told Cal, I'm sorry, I'm having dinner with Garrett tonight. That was news to him. But she shot him another pointed look, this time blinking hard. Maybe it was Morse code. Where is it we were going? Garrett swallowed, eager to get this right. He was in freezing waters and she was offering him a life preserver.
2: Uh, all-you-can-eat seafood,
1: please? was the best he could come up with. Then Garrett gave the banjos four strings a little strum. Not quite a tune, but almost musical. My favorite, she said, and her smile looked genuine and warm. Cal Hickson rolled his eyes and opened his mouth for a devastating burn. But what he said was,
0: No, I get it. He plays a sweet crone. Still, you know where you can
1: find me and he turned in his Italian loafers and strolled back to his BMW. It was an M240, a purple M240. Garrett felt his co-worker rubbing up against his shoulder.
3: I appreciate you backing me up on that,
1: she said softly. The vice president backed out of his spot, the engine
2: revving louder than would ever be necessary. No problem, but that dude's the smoothest guy I've ever seen.
3: Smooth's overrated, unless you're talking about cheats.
2: Gulp. Garrett watched the car drive off. Plus, he looks like Zac Efron did before he got old.
3: Well, I wouldn't date Zac Efron either if he called me Melva.
2: Melva? Really? Maybe he had a cold. <laughs> She laughed,
1: and it was every bit as musical as her banjo playing. How would it be?
3: How long have you been playing the banjo?
1: Like, five minutes? She nodded, as if that explained it all, but said nothing.
2: How about you?
3: Never touched one before today, but I regret
1: that. And Garrett had no idea how to follow that up. She'd said she played guitar. But maybe they weren't that different. She said she'd hurt her hand, but clearly it wasn't that serious. Maybe he could say she was a regular a person famous for playing the banjo. But no names came to mind. Once again Belva Stone saved him
2: from drowning.
3: So we on for tonight? Or were you just saying
1: that?
2: You well, you were the one saying it, he
1: managed, but decided to take advantage of her obvious friendliness.
2: Do you really like seafood?
1: He got another smile in response, and that was all he needed. Aldous Guest was on the news, and everybody at every water cooler was talking about him. A 31-year-old gym teacher... He was pulled over by the police for not coming to a complete stop at a red light. He was ordered out of his vehicle, then somehow got shot in the stomach. Of course, he was black, and the cops were white. And worst of all, it turned out, his four-year-old daughter was in the back seat to witness all of this. The story was everywhere, from California to Rhode Island, and was the latest outrage to get people screaming at each other. Threats of violence escalating quickly to more than threats. Guest was in the hospital, and maybe he'd make it, but maybe not. Honey? Garrett said, hitting mute on the TV coverage of the demonstrators gathered outside City Hall. I know, Belva said from the bathroom.
3: Even my sister in Korea texted me about it. What do you say we go over there? To Korea? Her apartment doesn't even have room for a cat.
2: He ignored his girlfriend. No, to the protest.
1: Belva stuck her head out of the bathroom door. She was in only a towel, nearly done coloring her hair. Did you say... Then she got it.
3: You know, I think that would be great.
1: They had to park seven blocks away, and the two walked side by side amid mostly young people who were carrying cell phones and homemade signs. Garrett had his banjo case and once they reached First Avenue, the crowd noise was almost deafening. The street had been cordoned off, and there were policemen everywhere, some holding riot care. Folks yelled, chanted, and screamed obscenities. Somebody threw a soda can at the lady holding a sign that read, Temecula PD ended two lives that day, and it bounced off and hit Garrett's shoe. It was a can of Fresca, of all things. A police helicopter flew overhead, its spotlight momentary blinding, and even that sound was drowned out. Garrett and Belva couldn't go any further. The crowd was too thick.
3: They say there's over 9,000 people here,
2: Belva shouted into his ear. That's more than my hometown, he yelled
1: back, but she couldn't hear him. He opened the banjo case and saw the startled looks from people around him which turned to cynicism when they saw the banjo, now complete with five strings and a fresh coat of lacquer on the bell. Somebody jostled him as he first began to play, but immediately the crowd nearest to Garrett started to quiet down. He played the most famous song ever recorded by a Muppet, and it had a soothing effect on those around him, which in turn had a palliative effect on the people around them, who perked up at the music being played. By the time he reached the end of the song, the tenor of the protesters had changed. People were crying, holding each other, praying for the survival of that black man, for the future of his little girl. Garrett was distracted by the fact that strangers kept touching him, patting his arms, and a troublingly thin old woman planted a kiss on his head. God bless you, banjo man someone else said, and he craned his neck to see who it was. A car alarm sounded down the block, and the crowd had hushed so much that he could hear it turn off. Play it again, Belville said in his ear. The nightly news ran a surprising story about a protest that ended on a peaceful, even inspiring note. Nobody could say why, but the police officers who'd been brought in from all over the state hadn't had to pepper spray or club anyone and the only arrests made had been from earlier in the evening. An LAPD sergeant was interviewed, saying, You'll always find common ground if you just listen. Belva led Garrett back through the crowd, which had begun singing the Beatles' All You Need Is Love, despite two-thirds of the protesters not knowing the song. People took his picture and thanked him for his service, like he was a decorated veteran. And two strangers had told him they loved him. Just as they reached the block where they'd parked, a portly man with prematurely gray hair came running up beside them. He was a music executive from Columbia Records, home of such classic artists as Simon and Garfunkel, Adele, Frank Sinatra, and Little Nas X. He wanted to sign Garrett to his label. Belva couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> Garrett plays for love, not money. Garrett glanced down at the man's proffered card.
2: Listen, I'm really not very good. I just got lucky.
4: The executive shook his head. My husband was in that crowd with me. We were getting divorced, hired lawyers and everything. But now, we're patching things up.
1: Garrett wasn't particularly surprised.
2: Congratulations. What was that song you played called?
4: Rainbow Connection?
1: The executive sniffled.
4: Well, it just moved everybody. It was like when that uh, pudgy Hawaiian did Over the Rainbow. Hey, I remember
1: that, Belver replied, which wasn't helping.
4: Look, Gary, you don't have to sign with me, but... It's Garrett but I'll pay you to lay down three tracks. How does twenty sound? Twenty tracks? It sounded like a lot of work. Thousand dollars,
1: said the man,
4: and waited for a reply.
1: Garrett didn't have an answer. That was more money than he'd ever seen, let alone been paid for something. But he and his girl had experimented with the banjo over the past weeks, and both knew its magical properties didn't work over a recording. Finally, Garrett
2: said,
4: sorry, but... I can go as high as 25.
1: said the exec, tears in his eyes.
2: It's not that, I just...
1: His face was reddening, and sweat had appeared at his temples and the back of his neck. He was getting freaked out here. The record executive found this touching.
4: You're nervous. Of playing for keeps? You brought a banjo to a race riot. A banjo!
1: They parted with a handshake and a promise to follow up in a less public environment, and Garrett and Belva made their way home, though the stopped traffic throughout downtown slowed them down considerably. Garrett did get better at playing the instrument. Better doesn't necessarily equal good, but he improved learning which strings achieved which notes without looking down. Belva played with him, and he played with her, and when the music was flowing, they were happy, and the world was a beautiful place. He never did manage to record three tracks for Columbia Records, though he got an even better offer from RCA Records, which it turned out was owned by the same parent company. He ended up on page four of the Los Angeles Times' coverage of the guest protests what they had been planning on calling the Guest Riots, but they didn't go that far. And his picture was part of the article, where he was referred to as an unnamed busker who, quote, reminded those gathered that Americans have more in common than our differences. In the photo, he held the instrument, his mouth open in song, with a crowd and Belva, looking on in admiration. He clicked on the photo, meaning to download it, and saw several user comments below it. Granted, two were observations on how stupid and obnoxious the banjo was, but more were from people who had been there, who remembered how good they felt while he played. But among them was a comment from someone calling himself Anon84633. It said, Identify banjo player. Who's this man holding the Osborne Mbanza? If anyone has his details, contact me, and then an email address. Belva pointed it out, and Garrett considered emailing whoever it was, but something about that phrase, the Osborne Mbanza, gave him pause. Belva looked it up and found out that the first banjos in the Congo in the 1700s were called Bantu Mbanzas.
3: Looks like yet another fan wants to make you a star.
1: At work, Garrett and Belva were minor celebrities. Even Calvin Hicks had paid his respects by giving them two parking spots right by the front entrance, announcing a company talent show where, shocker, Belva and Garrett took first and second place, respectively. All their dreams were coming true. He made sure she was looking him in the eyes.
2: It's not me. It's the instrument. You know that, right? She half-smiled.
3: I did figure that out. Mostly by how people treat me when I play.
1: She shook her head, embarrassed. Sure took me long enough. Garrett extended his hand, unsure whether she'd still take it.
2: And what do you think?
1: Belva took his hand after all. I
3: think it's a funny story we'll tell our grandkids
1: she said, her cheeks pinkening. It was quite forward, but Garrett felt the same, and he was relieved. Belva's flight was delayed, and he was stuck at LAX for another hour. He went back to his car and got the banjo, figuring he'd sit and play outside luggage retrieval until her plane got in. The last time he'd played in public, down in Santa Monica, he'd made $200. Garrett now dabbled in songwriting, and his best song was so shaky, he'd called it Rough Draft. His fingers now knew where to go, almost on their own, and nearly every note he hit was what he intended. He sat in the rigid leather chair and performed his song. Travelers listened as they hurried to their gates, and airline employees lifted their coffee cups to him. One older guy, with a captain's hat on, tossed a pair of plastic wings into his guitar case, the kind they gave to little kids. Tourists with aching backs forgot their jet lag and gave him a couple bucks. Crying children quieted, and an angry businessman stopped cursing into his cell phone long enough to smile and give him a nod. Right before roughed Draft's final chorus... Garrett saw movement and looked up, just as a stranger yanked the banjo out of his arms. Hey! Garrett said. But the man, middle-aged with receding red hair, stepped back and slammed the banjo down on the terrazzo, like Pete Townsend smacking his rickenbacker at the end of a fevered set. The attacker swung a second time, sledgehammering the already broken banjo against the pavement, letting it fall at Garrett's feet. Garrett was numb, in shock. He tried to stand, but one of his legs was asleep, and he fell onto his knees. A little girl whined, That was mean! and her mother told her they needed to catch their connection, or they'd miss Hawaii. A security guard spoke into a walkie-talkie about an incident near Delta Baggage Claim. The man who'd done it still stood there, as if awaiting a response. Garrett said nothing, cradling the smashed instrument in his arms, one of its snap strings wrapping around his arm, as though clinging to life. There was no coming back from this, though. The banjo was thoroughly, irreparably destroyed. The assailant was gesticulating at him, but not speaking. Why did you do that? Garrett managed. Again, the man pointed to the instrument Moving his hands and fingers. It was sign language. He shrugged expansively, pointed to his ear, then signed something else emphatic. Garrett understood none of it, but the attacker, having said his piece, turned and ran off toward the escalators. Massive characters for this story are Dave Thompson as Garrett McLaren, Rish Outfield himself as Kevin Grandine, uh, Keith Tecklitz as Brad Kramer, Renee Chambliss as Belva Stone, Bria Burton as Latoya Aronson, Big Anklitch as Cal Hickson, Gino Moretto as the Columbia Records Executive, and I lovable for Arnold Marshall as the narrator and assorted other voices. So there you go. There is With a Banjo on My Knee by Rich Outfield. Once again the third place winner in the Coral Quell writing contest that I ran here earlier this year. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this story. Did you pick up on the words that were used? Of course, banjo. You couldn't escape banjo, right? (laughs) Everything in the story hinged upon this banjo that was found in in an alleyway. And its interesting properties and how it affected Garrett and all all those things. Uh, But before we talk too much about this story, I'd like to get Rish's take, the author's note, if you will for this story by Rish himself. So let's let's listen to that. Rish says, Each writing contest the Journey Into podcast comes up with is a crapshoot, since chance or luck selects the title, theme, or keywords. Although I suppose we got to choose our own title in the Edgar Allan Poe contest. This one, however, was the most challenging for me. The words I drew were draft, Drain, Banjo, and Guest. And not a one of those filled me with inspiration. But don't worry, Marshall got it worse. Proof that karma is real. So I sat down one evening and brainstormed what each word brought to mind. Draft, for example, made me think of a cold breeze coming from nowhere. Or a military draft, or the kind of draft or the kind of draft they have in sports, or a kind of beer. But none of those put a story into my head. Finally, I selected banjo as the key word, the most important of the four words, and brainstormed a story about a young man named Rich, not Rich, Rich, whose biological mother died when he was two, so he never knew her family. He is summoned to the deathbed of a great uncle he never knew, who reveals that since he never had children of his own, Rich is his only living relative. And Uncle Julian is very wealthy, having been a blues songwriter of much renown 70 years back. He tells Rich that if he can learn to play the banjo, the money will go to him. But Rich doesn't want to play the banjo. He thinks it's a vile, disgusting instrument, only a step up from playing a lumberjack saw. But he doesn't want the money to go to the bank, or toward Marshall Latham's Patreon fund, <clears throat> www.patreon.com slash into. So he promises to learn to play the banjo, and from the moment he picks up the instrument, he is befallen by bad luck, starting with his old Chevy, and ending with his girlfriend breaking off their engagement. You would too, if you found out your fiancé was learning to play the banjo, but... All that really didn't go anywhere. Mostly because I didn't know where it was going to lead. It was all building up to a moment where Rich would have to prove to the estate lawyer that he could play the banjo. But I couldn't come up with an ending. Either good or bad. A waste of time. Pretty much like my whole life. Come on, Rich. Give yourself some credit here. (laughs) So, I started again. This time, writing a story where the banjo one that belonged to an old, long-dead blues man, brought good luck instead of bad, and the story you've just read was born. Oh no, Marshall, you're not reading this before the story, are you? You mad fool, you. You'll doom us all. I said it in Los Angeles, and at the job I had when I lived there, and ended up wasting more time reading about old jazz players and the history of the banjo and musical instruments that were reputed to be haunted, but somehow managed to finish this story and get it short enough to submit in time. I'm glad somebody liked it, since that pretty much makes one of us. No, that, that's not true, Rish. That, that that makes it at least four of us liked this one. Of course, then he signs it, Rish Benjamin Outfield, July of 2023. So there you go. There's Rich's explanation of of how he was inspired or maybe not inspired by these words to write this story. Yeah, you know, it is kind of a crapshoot. You know, what words are you going to get? But I I also thought it was a fun challenge in, okay, I'm saddled with these words. I'm going to make gold out of straw here kind of thing. And yes, I did get saddled myself with some pretty strange words. (laughs) But interestingly enough, It was enough to inspire uh, two stories. That uh, One that I've written and one that I'm in the middle of writing, but it's a much longer story. And so, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Uh, And someday I may uh, record one of those and and present it here to you as well. Uh, But right now we're focusing on Rish's story and this blessed banjo. I don't know, would you consider it blessed? I like this story. I was very interested in this banjo and the effects that it had on people, I thought it was fun. You know, when they were experimenting with it and realized that it didn't, that recordings wouldn't work. It had to be a live presentation. I liked the budding relationship between Garrett and Belva Stone, <laughs> and I do kind of smile every time I read or say the name of Belva Stone, or when I was narrating it uh, because. Belva Stone was the name that I came up with. You know, Rish texted me one night, I guess while he was writing this story, and said, hey, I need the name of a woman with an old lady's name (laughs) and like an older person's name, but it was somebody who was young and was generally good looking, but not like a, a knockout babe that would make everybody stop in their tracks. I think that was the criteria that he gave me to come up with. And so I started thinking of people that I knew with older names. And there's this lady that I know from church whose name is Belva Stone. And I remember when I first learned her name that I had never heard that name before, Belva. And that it was an an older person's name, that it was probably a family name or something that her parents gave her when she was born. And so it's a little bit hard. I, I do have to really concentrate to picture a Belva Stone, the Belva Stone in this story and not just picture the Belvestone that I know. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of fun that, that he used that name. And it's, she's a pretty substantial character here in the story. And so, so I liked all that. I think the only thing that holds this story back is the limitations of the contest itself. Um, you know, it had a word count, it couldn't be more than 7,500 words. And I was really interested in the history of this banjo this Osborne Mbanza and where, you know, where it came from and what's its history. And then the way that it ends is so abrupt and sudden, you know, just all of a sudden out of nowhere, this guy shows up and beats the banjo and destroys it. And then it's over. And it's like, what? W- 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 why, why did he do that? It seemed to be a good luck charm or a good thing but maybe there were some evil repercussions from playing this banjo. I don't know. I don't that's the thing. That's the only disappointment I have in this story is I don't know enough about this banjo to understand why it had to be destroyed this way. And I'm sure Rich had ideas about that. I'm sure that if he were given free reign to make this story as long as he wanted, that he would have explored and explained that kind of thing. Even if he didn't know exactly at the time that he was writing this, he would have had the freedom to develop that further. And, you know, this this could be a much, much longer story to follow the adventures of Garrett and Belva and this banjo. You know, and, and storytelling is an interesting thing, you know. Would this story work without that end sting, where the banjo gets destroyed, and it's just a, a happy life for this uh, happy musical couple, or does it do exactly what it needs to do and create more mystery around this whole thing? Um, you know, if if this were a Twilight Zone episode, that would be a very memorable ending, right? And so, when you have a restricted word count, you know you have to make choices and. You know, one could make a choice to abbreviate the discovery of all the intricacies of this banjo and how it worked and, and the benefits that it brought to Garrett's life. You could have maybe abbreviated this relationship uh, between this couple. But I liked all those things. I liked the little details of, of all of that. So I couldn't think of anything that I would want to just cut out of the whole thing altogether. And so, yeah, storytelling is all about choices that you make and how you use, and since this is a contest and he had to use these words and he only had a certain word count and, you know, I I guess it kind of had to be about this banjo that was the most significant word that he was given for this contest. But I like the fact that this story would never have existed. Rish would never have thought to write any of this story if I hadn't prompted him with these words. And so that's kind of my enjoyment of creating this contest is I can provide the impetus or the creative spark, I guess for other people to create a story and that's kind of exciting and kind of fun. And I think generally (laughs) Rish likes that kind of thing too. uh, But I could tell that he was frustrated in how he was going to, to use these words. And it turns out it won third place here in the contest. And now it's been presented to you, the journey into audience. And I hope you've had a good time. I, I sure did. Reading this story, presenting this story, producing this story. You know, like I said, it's it's always a lot of work, uh, especially when you do it full cast. And like I said, I was dragging my feet a little bit to put these together. But now that it's all done, I really like the the end product. Of this production as well. You know, I was really worried though as I was reading the story. I'm like, how am I gonna, you know, we have specific songs that our main character is playing on a banjo and he doesn't play it very well, but it sounds good to those that are in the audience. So, how am I gonna do that? How am I gonna present that audibly in this story? I was really worried about, geez this really isn't going to work. And so what I ended up doing essentially is scaling all of that back and not doing any real time sound effects. I just had the interstitial uh, banjo playing and uh, big Ankovich heard about this story that it was about a banjo. And he says, Hey, I, I have this audio of this weird, freaky banjo music. Uh, maybe you can use it in your production of this story. And so I did use that music. But I just kind of used it to lead in the story and at the end of the story. And then all the, all the different sections were, of course, separated by the little banjo stings. And it was all part of that audio that, that Big provided. Uh, and so that's, that's ultimately what I ended up doing with this. You know, but as I was putting it together, I'm like, oh, he steps in a puddle of water. Oh, I could put it in a little puddle sound effect. Oh, this guy gets hit by a car. Oh, I could put a sound effect in that sounds like this guy getting hit by a car and the other, and the taxi honking and blah, 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 blah. You know, I I could have just gone on and on and on with all of these in story audio sound effects, but that would have taken much, much longer. It would have been a lot more work. And it probably wouldn't have, have mattered very much in your enjoyment of the story. And if I were to have tried to include in-story banjo music instead of outside of the story, I think that would have been really distracting and disappointing. And it would have kind of diverted you away from the the text of the story. And so, or maybe I'm just making excuses for being lazy with this. But I I like how it came together in the end. And uh, hopefully you did too. (laughs) Oh, and then another thing that I wanted to do here with these stories is there's been a lot of talk about AI and ChatGPT and it replacing writers or actors or things like that. Uh, We heard a lot about that with these Writers Guild and Actors Guild strikes in Hollywood. And we've heard Rish's version of the story and the way he would use these words. But I thought it would be kind of fun also to feed these words and a basic genre of story and feed that into ChatGPT and let it come up with its own story for us here. And so that's what I did. Echoes of the Unseen by Chat GPT In the small town of Havenbrook, a place known for its eerily calm atmosphere, a mysterious draft swept through the streets, leaving the residents bewildered. The wind carried with it an otherworldly chill that seemed to defy explanation, sending shivers down the spines of those who dared to venture outside after dark. One peculiar evening, a traveling musician named Jasper arrived in Havenbrook. With his worn-out banjo slung over his shoulder, he sought refuge in the only inn the town possessed. The innkeeper, an elderly woman named Eliza, greeted him with a cautious smile. She hesitated, but eventually offered him a room, warning him about the strange draft that had been haunting the town. Jasper dismissed her concerns, attributing them to local superstitions. He eagerly sat up in his room, ready to play his banjo for any patrons who might be interested in a bit of entertainment. As he plucked the strings, a haunting melody echoed through the empty hallways, seemingly absorbed by the ancient walls. That night, a curious guest approached Jasper, drawn by the melancholy notes. The stranger introduced himself as Samuel, a longtime resident of Havenbrook. He spoke in hushed tones, revealing the town's dark secret. There was an old drain in the center of Havenbrook, hidden beneath a crumbling fountain. Samuel claimed that the draft was the result of something ancient and supernatural emanating from the depths of the drain. Intrigued by Samuel's story, Jasper decided to investigate. The two ventured into the heart of the town, guided only by the ethereal sound of the banjo and their shared curiosity. They reached the fountain, where the draft seemed to intensify. With a nervous glance, Samuel pointed to the drain. As Jasper peered into the darkness, he felt a chill running down his spine. The banjo's tune seemed to merge with the eerie hum emanating from the depths below. Samuel explained that the drain was once a portal that had plagued Havenbrook for centuries. However, the seal was weakening, allowing the otherworldly draft to escape. Determined to restore peace to the town, Jasper played a haunting melody on his banjo, channeling the energy of the unseen force. As the last note lingered in the air, a blinding light engulfed the drain. The ancient portal closed, silencing the draft and restoring calm to Havenbrook. With the threat banished, Jasper and Samuel returned to the inn, their banjo and secret well kept. The townspeople, oblivious to the supernatural events, continued their lives as if nothing had happened. The mysterious draft, the drain, and the banjo's enchanting melody became but whispers in the wind fading into the twilight zone of Forgotten Tales. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. I mean, there's some good elements, I guess, here of a story. Uh, I can't picture a banjo in this story, though. I mean, obviously he's playing the banjo for the music. Um, But it just doesn't seem to fit the environment. And maybe that could be cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, just kind of weird, you know, a fiddle maybe, or a violin or something like that would seem to fit more than a banjo. Um, but you know, I guess maybe ChatGBT is having the same issues, fitting a banjo into a story as Rish did, but, uh, it really focused on that draft, right? And, uh, Echoes of the Unseen, I guess is a pretty good title, but I could see it being called... The draft, you know, you have the fog, the mist. This story could be titled The Draft. <laughs> I know the word draft has a lot of definitions, but uh, yeah, I noticed that uh, this chat GBT story didn't have any dialogue. It did a lot of explaining what the people said to each other. Um, when I'm writing a story, and I think when most people are writing a story, they focus a lot on the dialogue because that's where the characterization comes in. That's where we meet and get to know our characters through their voice. And there's none of that in this story. And, you know, in general, it's kind of just a generic story of the mis- this mysterious draft in a town. <laughs> and the banjo player comes in and meets the innkeeper and meets Samuel, the guest. Yeah, I... So I, th- I thought that'd be interesting. I'm probably I'm, and I'm gonna do that for these other stories as well as we go through them, just to see what uh, Chat GPT ha- GPT has to say. So, well, I I get need to get to work on the uh, second place winner of this contest, and I've started a little bit. I've got some lines read. Uh, there's not as many characters or as much dialogue in the story. So that helps me with this next one coming up, but uh, I'll, I'll be working on that and I'm going to try to get these done as quick as I can for you and for these authors. And as soon as I stop recording, I'm going to remember something I wanted to say about this story or something, but that's the way it always goes. So it's uh, probably a good time to end this. Thank you for listening to this story and this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to contact me and uh, and let me know what you thought of this story or anything else that I've talked about, you can simply send an email to journeyintopodcast at gmail.com or you can call the voicemail line at 77 J into 107 If you'd like to support this podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash journey into and uh, look at the ways to support me over there. Thanks for the plug there. <laughs> Rish, in your author's note. Oh, and you can also reach out to me on Facebook or X. <laughs> I, I always have to giggle when I say that because it sounds so strange. And I'm and now I'm even on Instagram and, and threads. So feel free to reach out to me on those platforms as well. And I'll be back with uh, more journeys here in the future. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, but until then, stay safe out there. And... Journey on! The Journey Into podcast is produced under Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means that you are encouraged to share this podcast with as many people as you would like. Uh, But please don't change it or sell it. And let people know where you got it from.
0: He fished a screw. <laughs> he fished a screw.
1: He fished a screwdriver out of the drawer. Oh, freaking airplanes. I don't know why it makes me so mad. I'm not near an airport, but there are freaking airplanes flying overhead constantly. Where he spent the whole hour strumming.
0: A banjo? Jeez. Maybe I should see if I can't get you moved down to the mail room. Let me do that even more assholy. A banjo? Jeez. Maybe I should see if I can't get you moved down to the mailroom.
1: There seemed to be some residual affection in his voice. Blum, 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 blum. Garrett jumped. He'd been thinking about things other than designer glassware orders, co-workers' birthdays, even things other than the lonely... Even things other than the low... Uh, Even things... Even things other than the... Even things other than the lovely... uh, You can write these things. Even things... Even things other than the lovely Alexandra Alcazar and her brightly colored... And her brightly covered, ever-tight sweaters. Sorry. Sorry. His cousin Hayden once got fired for quoting the wrong movie in front of the wrong person. It had been a queer It had been a Quentin Carrot. It had been a Quentin Carrot. It had been. It had been a. It had been a Quentin Tarantino movie. It had been a Quentin Tarantino movie. It had been a. It had been a Quentin Tarantino movie. Even as he turned, he could smell light shampoo, and expected the sextastic. And expected the sextastic. And expected the sextastic. And expected the sex tactic. <laughs> That's hard to say, Rish. Expected to say the sex tactic Alexandria. Too many X's. XXX. X, X. But he could smell light shampoo and expected the sex tactic. And expected the sex tactic. And expected the sex. The sex tactic. Alexandria and expected the sextastic Alexandria.
0: Oh, 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 ha. <laughs> oh,
1: am I bothering you? She asked. No. <coughs> He smiled with all his teeth. Uh. Plus, he looks like Zac Efron. Plus, he looks like Zac (coughs) Efron. Plus, he looks like Zac Efron before he got old. Oh, I don't need to read that anyway. She laughed. She laughed. And it was every bit as, and it was every bit dang it. And it was every bit as magical, not magical, musical. And it was every bit as, and it was every bit as musical. And it was every bit as musical as her banjo playing. He ended up on page four of the Los Angeles Times coverage of the guest, of the guest protex. (laughs) <laughs> of the guest protests. Can't say that word for some reason. He ended up on page four of the Los Angeles Times coverage. He ended up on page four of the Los Angeles Times coverage of the Garrett of the Guests Pro of the Guest Protests. Who's this man holding the Osborne Mbaza? mbanza Who's this man holding the Osborne Mbaza? Ah. Who's this man holding the Osborne M- holding the Osborne Mbanza. Mbanza. Mbanza, Mbanza, Mbanza. Who's this man holding the Osborne Mbanza and announcing a company talent where Shocker, Belva and Garrett took first place. Maybe talent show. Announcing a company talent show where, shocker, Belva, and Garrett took first and second place, respectively. Like Pete Townsend smashing his Rickenbacker. Like Pete Townsend smashing his Rickenbacker. Dang it. Like Pete Townsend smashing his Rickenbacker. Ugh. Like Pete Townsend smashing his Rickenbacker at. Like Pete Townsend smacking his Rickenbacker at the end of a feb. Dang it! At the end of a fevered state. Ah. At the end of a fevered set. <coughs> and that's the truth.